Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the defense of democracy at home and abroad. Over the weekend, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv, vowing that the U.S. would support Ukraine until the fight is done. Pelosi, second in line to the presidency, is the highest ranking American leader to visit Ukraine since the start of Russia's invasion. Here at home at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington, D.C., we heard similar messages from President Biden and host Trevor Noah who shared comedic and urgent takes on stepping up to save democracy right here in the U.S. I stood here tonight and I made fun of the president of the United States and I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine, right? (laughs) Ask yourself this question. If, If Russian journalists who are losing their livelihoods, as you were talking about, Steve, and their freedom for daring to report on what their own government is doing, if they had the freedom to write any words, to show any stories, or to ask any questions, if they had basically what you have, would they be using it in the same way that you do? The free press is not the enemy of the people. Far from it. The truth matters. American democracy is not a reality show. It's reality itself. The First Amendment is in peril because democracy is in peril. The authoritarian impulses of Trump are not behind us. They are very much still here. The infamous phone call Trump once made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asking him to find the votes to steal the election in his favor. That phone call is now the center of a criminal investigation. What may be the biggest threat of criminal prosecution that Trump currently or has ever faced. In Atlanta today, a special grand jury was selected for the investigation into whether Trump and others illegally tried to influence the 2020 election in Georgia. We also learned a bit more about that phone call. According to CNN, during the call, a Raffensperger aide fired off a plea for help, texting then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, quote, need to end this call. I don't think this will be productive much longer. Let's save the relationship. That isn't the only investigation, of course, as the January 6th committee aims to wrap up its fact-finding phase. It has asked three Republican lawmakers to cooperate with the panel and share what they know about the deadly attack. Those lawmakers are Congressman Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, and Ronnie Jackson. Jackson quickly declined the offer, telling NBC, quote, I will not participate in the illegitimate committee's ruthless crusade against President Trump and his allies, unquote. A predictable response from a Trump sycophant accused of harassing staff and drinking while serving as White House physician. And late today, Congressman Biggs tweeted he will not be participating in the, quote, illegitimate Democrat sympathizing panel. Also calling the committee a sham aimed to destroy Trump. Now, let it be known, too, that these Republicans are shielding someone who tried to steal the presidency. He also wanted to shoot unarmed civilians exercising their First Amendment rights. Remember during the George Floyd demonstrations when Trump had to hide in his underground bunker while protesters clashed with police near the White House? Well, according to a forthcoming memoir by former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, Trump said of those protesters, quote, can't you just shoot them? Just shoot them in the legs or something. 
Well, it didn't happen, but it very well could. When one day a, d- a different Trump cabinet agrees to shoot protesters and as a different official is more than willing to find enough votes. Joining me now is Jill Wine-Banks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast, and Michael Eric Dyson, distinguished professor of African-American studies at Vanderbilt University and co-author of the brand new book, Unequal, A Story of America. Thanks to you both. Jill, I want to start with you because you have experience dealing with our previous authoritarian attempted authoritarian president, who, by the way, you know, it's it's child's play almost what uh, Richard Nixon was doing compared to what Donald Trump did. You know, I think the biggest concern I have about Trump is not even Trump anymore. He's retired and and no one even knows if he's going to run. It's that what what he is has metastasized into the whole party. I mean, you have a governor in Florida um, who has has pushed for a law that says that protesters can drive their cars into and hit protesters. And that was directed at Black Lives Matter protests to try to make protesting in Florida damn near illegal, but really only for and directed at George Floyd era and Black Lives Matter protesters. He has a secret police force to, you know, for election fraud, which we all know is going to be targeted at voters of color. It, Trumpism isn't Trump anymore, is it? it, it, it isn't it more dangerous because it's now infected almost every Republican official? Absolutely. You are 100 percent correct. And that is, I think, what's scaring so many people in America now is exactly how close we came in the past to losing our democracy, but how dangerous it is going forward, because all of the Republicans who participated in this and those who are now running for office, who weren't even in office before, who have adopted the same Trumpian policies are putting their past learnings to work. And it could be much worse. And if Congress doesn't get its act together and pass some laws or fix existing laws like the Electoral College Act to prevent a takeover and ignoring the will of the people, just throwing away the votes of Americans, we will be in very serious trouble. Uh, It's something that we all, every one of us, has to be concerned about and has to go and work to make sure that not only we vote and that other people vote, but that our votes are counted, that we elect secretaries of state who will count our votes as they were cast. And, you know, Dr. Dyson, you know, it, the, the, the metastasis is sort of it's, it's total. Right. I mean, the next most likely president, I just mentioned him, DeSantis, is also blocking the right to vote, is stripping black representation. I mean, he's doing everything Trump does just without the sense of humor. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I have no doubt that if he were president, he would then not only utilize the, the powers that Trump attempted to utilize, but that he would be more effective in doing it because they're also, as Jill Weinbanks just indicated, they're also putting in place from top to bottom, from the secretary of state's office to local city councils to school boards, people who think this way. And they've put them everywhere. And I haven't seen much to, to, to push it back. Let me give you an example. There's a, so there, and this is the people who actually do get prosecuted. The, one of these guys who was an, an insurrectionist, one of the grunts that broke into the Capitol, 56 year old former NYPD officer has now taken the old self defense argument that police normally use in shoot, in, in situations where they harm a civilian. He tried to apply that to his defense. He didn't, it didn't succeed. He actually was convicted, but you know, all of it is then usable to then be reinterpreted for Trumpism. There's no question about it. This is not an individual. This is not a personal vendetta. This is not an individual assault. This is a pathology that has invaded the body politic. If we're talking about COVID as a metaphor, 
then this is something that has spread broad and wide in the body politic, especially of republicanism, of Trumpocracy in American culture. This is a return to reconstruction, post-reconstruction, when white folk who lost the war but who won the battle of interpretation got on their uh, haunches, so to speak, and rode hard against black people through violence, through voter suppression, through intimidation, uh, having denied women the vote, having denied African-American and people who didn't own property. They were angry at the prospect that America would now live up to the true meaning of its creed, as Dr. King said. So what we see now is the Manchurian candidate has nothing on Donald Trump. You have to go to fiction. You have to go to the outlandish imagination uh, that is at the further ends of paranoia to even conjure the prospect of what we see going on. We had essentially an American president who was complicit with a nation that has now gone to war against another nation. And he gave justification for that. He preferred the words of Putin to the words of his own uh, you know, intelligence agencies. So yes, we see at the very local level, at the police level, at the law enforcement level, and, and, and God forbid, at the jurist, you know, at jurisprudential level with the, with the sitting benches here, as well as these, uh, these feckless, spineless, uninspired politicians politicians who give in to every women caprice of Donald Trump. And when Donald Trump is not there, they still have a machinery in place that will destroy the infrastructure of democracy if we don't raise the red banner of warning and resistance. You know, and, and I mean, Jill, I mean, I th just think about Georgia for a second. I mean, think about it. That next time Brad Raffensperger would do it, right? I mean, this time he did stand up to it. There was a, there was a moment of clarity and a moment of moral clarity for even you know, Kevin McCarthy, uh, when, when the, when the, you know, when the, when the walls started crashing in and the gates started crashing in and they were overrun with these MAGA, uh, people on January 6th, pretty much most Republicans had the, the, the normal reaction, but they are all now willing to do it. Um, you know, I, I don't doubt for a second that the next Brad Raffensperger, if he doesn't win his seat back, will do it next time. Um, it, Let's go to um, some of the things that I, I see stories and now I see America in them. There is this Russian oligarch. Um, who spoke out, he's a the multi-billionaire, he was, um, against Vladimir Putin. He spoke out against the war. We just talked, Michael Dice just talked about the war. He was essentially threatened by the state, by the Kremlin. And his bank was said, you know, his presence in the bank is a problem. They said the statement of your shareholder is not welcome. We will nationalize your bank. They threatened to nationalize the bank if he was still involved. He was forced to then fire sale his share of the bank. That idea of punishing an individual corporation for speech sounds, wow, that's Russia. No, they're doing that here. They're doing it in Florida to Disney. Um, Laura Ingraham and, uh, has said on Fox that they will do it to every company that doesn't comply when Republicans are in charge. Rick Scott, the former governor of Florida, has written a manifesto, and he has said, we're going to get you any corporation that doesn't comply when we're in charge. It's, it's, there, there's no difference now between the ethos, except for the Kremlin also has lethal, uh, potential attacks on people who don't comply. Your thoughts. My thoughts are it's horrifying. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing Ruth Ben Giat for iGen Politics, my other podcast. And as she was describing a fascist dictator, starting with Mussolini, the characteristics that she described were chilling because she was describing Donald Trump. She was describing Putin. And that is terrifying. 
because once that starts to slide, then we have lost our democracy. So it it's something that only we can protect. When you mentioned Brad Raffsenberger, I don't know what he would do the second time. We'll have some idea when he decides how to handle the disqualification of Marjorie Taylor Greene, because it is up to him whether she stays on the ballot, whether she was guilty of insurrection. He may not have the courage to do it and stand up to the Trumpists. And you're right, it's not just Trump anymore. It is DeSantis. It is Mo Brooks. It is that whole category of people. So I, I hope he's strong enough to stand up to it. I don't know enough about what the evidence is. He may be right in not barring her from, from the, the ballot. But they are preparing by what they learned in trying to overturn this election how to do it better. And unless we fix the laws so that they can't do these kinds of things, so that the vice president can't just willy-nilly say, I'm not counting that vote, there has to be evidence. There has to be something more than that. And the hearings, I think, will be very important. I look forward to them, to hearing the evidence all put together in a compelling closing argument so that Americans of both Republican and Democrat can hear the facts and hopefully listen to them and not just continue with this business of, I'm only listening to Fox News interpretation. I'm listening to the you know, original evidence. And very quickly, let me play um, Jonathan Martin, because I, I'm not sure. I mean, the Republicans, um, Dr. Dyson, seem to be more focused on nationalizing anti-abortion laws and passing a national ban on abortion. That seems to be what they're sort of cooking up at the moment, not saving our democracy. I'm not sure there are any of them who would stand up to it. Here's Jonathan Martin talking about the hold that Trump still has in the party. He is still the leader of the Republican Party. Even the candidates who he's not endorsed, those who he have snubbed, they're still kissing up to him. They're still mentioning his name in their speeches and their TV ads. They want his support. So that tells you everything about the grip he still has. And that was on The View earlier today. Um, Dr. Dyson, all the political incentives are to go further in the MAGA direction, not to pull back from it. So how do we pull back from it? Sure, they're loading their automatic weapons with their magazines. So the truth is that they are beyond truth. You know, I listened to my uh, gracious colleague here speak with the uh, authority of a, a jurist who looks at adjudicating competing claims. You got one claim over here, one claim over here. We look at the evidence, we decide what's true. They are beyond truth. They are beyond fact. They have already announced alternative facts. Now they have alternative truths. They live in an alternative universe. And the, the problem with them is that they are enforcing their created, imagined world as the real world. They are supplanting what are our deep principles of democracy, justice, freedom, uh, equality. They are supplanting the, the, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, with their own vicious assault upon freedom. Isn't it amazing that, that Trumpers uh, and First Amendment people who have been Republicans are now the ones who are undercutting freedom? So yes, his hold is extremely strong. And unless they uh, loose that vice grip of death, they will go down with it. But we will be going down with them as well. Yeah, unfortunately so. Um, a lot of alarming stuff going on out there. Jill Weinbanks, uh, Dr. Mark Larry Dyson, thank you both for being here. Up next on the readout, no, Laura Ingraham, it is not acceptable to be forced to work into your 70s to pay off your kids' college loans. Senator Elizabeth Warren joins me on the student debt crisis. Plus, the New York Times' Nick Confessori joins me on his deep dive into the mad, mad world of Tucker Carlson and how he built, and I quote, 
what may be the most racist show in the history of cable news, unquote. And one last chance for justice. Late today, the three centenarian survivors of the Tulsa race massacre got some very good news as they made their case for reparations. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. This asinine, I want to pay off student debt, is an insult to the senior citizens, to the people who pay taxes, to people who decide, you know, do I want to buy meat this week or pay for my medicine? That's hogwash. You got so many jobs. You got a great economy. Let them work and pay off their bills just the way all of us do. Well, that's certainly rich. Coming from someone whose judicial campaign owed $600,000 in unpaid bills for more than a decade. But okay. Janine Pirro is unfortunately not the only person on the right with a bad take on student loans, as President Biden considers forgiving some student debt. Laura Ingraham tweeted, my mom worked as a waitress until she was 73 to help pay for our college, even help with loan repayment, loan forgiveness, just another insult to those who play by the rules. Now, I will note that back in the 80s, before she became a Fox News star, Laura, who graduated from the Ivy League Dartmouth College in 1985, then University of Virginia Law School in 1991, worked for a top New York law firm as a speechwriter in the Reagan administration and as a clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. Way to look out for your mom while uh, still letting her by still letting her pay off your student loans, uh, by slinging hash as a waitress into her 70s instead of just picking up the tab for her, Laura. But you know what? I feel like Laura actually did us a huge favor by explaining modern conservatism in a nutshell, perfectly. Just put the working class on the wheel, even if they're family, while the affluent and the rich eat. And while they may be cruel, Republicans aren't dumb. They know that if President Biden and Democrats actually do something about student debt, it could activate young and progressive voters who overwhelmingly prefer Democrats when they vote. And so they have introduced a bill to try to block Biden from doing just that. But what about voters in the middle who say, hey, I paid off my loan, so other people should be able to do it as well? Well, see, that argument is usually presented without a lot of context. Take this report from Georgetown, which points out that today, two out of three jobs require an education beyond a high school diploma. While in the 1970s, three out of four jobs required a high school diploma or less. So a college degree is not a luxury. It's a necessity for most people who want to earn decent wages. It is a literal ladder into the middle class. But the price of college has skyrocketed. From 1980 to 2019, the cost increased by 169 percent. That is not a typo. While worker pay for those age 22 to 27 years of age has increased by just 19 percent. That is the mismatch, y'all. 
You need the degree, but the degree puts you into so much debt, you still can't get ahead. And that means that your contributions to the economy are also limited. That is how we've gotten to a world where 43 million Americans collectively owe $1.7 trillion in student debt. That is a number that is only going to keep rising. With me now, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. And Senator, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate you being here. And, you know, I will note that, you know, I graduated. I had a lot of scholarships. I graduated with about $15,000 worth of debt. Mm-hmm from Harvard uh, in in 1991. But the whole cost of a Harvard education back then was like $22,000 a year. Our kids, my husband and I, we, you know, our kids, each of their educations cost double that. So uh, do you understand the sort of moral hazard argument that people make when they say, why can't you pay it off? It took me like a decade to do it. Um, Why, why, why should people not um, get their debt paid off? So, so let's start on this, this question about who it is who's carrying that student loan debt. You know, it's not Harvard graduates. I, I appreciate that you had some, but the reality is more than 99% of the people who are carrying student loan debt are not graduating from Ivy League colleges. In fact, 40% of the people who have student loan debt do not have a college diploma. Think about that. These are mm-hmm. people who, God bless them, they tried, right? But yep. life happened. Pregnancy, they were trying to work three jobs, their mom got sick, the family had to move to another town. Whatever it was, they weren't able to make it through to a diploma. So now look at the position they're in. Because they weren't born into a family that could pay for it, but they tried. They now earn what a high school grad earns, but they're trying to manage college-level debt, and it is crushing their bones. So I see this as a moment when we just have to kind of decide what kind of a country do we want to be? What, What is it that we think we do to build a future? And I heard Laura Ingram say, you know, the answer is make them work till they're 73. And look, Unreal. that is right now, in effect, the official position of the United States government. In fact, yeah. did you know that tens of thousands of people who are living on Social Security have had their Social Security checks garnished to pay for student loan debt? And sometimes it's their own because, you know, mid-career, they went back, tried to get a diploma. A lot of times, though, it's because they guaranteed a debt for a beloved child or a beloved grandchild. Now, we could decide as a nation, just keep grinding on those people as hard as you can, squeeze every last nickel out of them, and watch them get deeper and deeper into debt because you hit them with penalty fees and raised interest rates if they stumble and can't make it. Or we can decide as a nation that we actually are all better off if people try to get an education, those who succeed. It helps them individually, but it helps all of us. And look, that's not a novel idea. When I went to college, I graduated from the University of Houston when it cost $50 a semester, five zero. And the reason that I could graduate from a college that could be paid for on a part-time waitressing job was Mm -hmm. because American taxpayers invested. And they said, you know, kid, if you're going to get out there and try, we're going to support you and help make that happen because that's what we want people to do. We want them to try to get an education. We don't want to just grind up their bones when they try and can't manage the debt. 
You know, the thing about this argument that I think is so disingenuous, Senator, is that we're acting as if the government doesn't constantly forgive other kinds of debt. Like rich people will take out tens of billions of dollars to make a shopping mall and then go into uh, bankruptcy. And there's a special kind of bankruptcy yeah. just for rich people. We forgive rich people's debt. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump got his debt forgiven five times that way. And so the mm -hmm. thing is, is mm -hmm. how have we gotten to a point where the government, without a second thought, Steve Mnuchin back when he was in business was like, you need money? Here's a check. And then when people who are regular people say, I would like some money, they say, get out and work. <laughs> That's that's exactly. But, you know, I'll tell you part of the reason for that. Part of the reason for that is just plain old. The rich people got lots of lobbyists and yes. lots of PR folks and lots and lots of friends whose campaigns they have donated to. Yeah. Folks who are struggling with student loan debt. They don't have a big lobbying arm to get out there for them. All they've got is each other. But that's right. that is the key that you mentioned earlier about voting. This is something that's very popular, activates voters up and down the spectrum. And understand, when I say very popular, it's popular among people who have student loan debt, mm -hmm. but it's also popular among people who don't. A majority yeah. of Americans who do not have student loan debt say, I want to see us forgive a chunk of student loan debt because most of them know somebody who does. A, yeah. a beloved friend, a, a child, uh, you know, a, a co-worker, they see what's happening to people and how student loan debt, trying to pay for an education, instead yeah. of education being the thing that's the equalizer, everybody gets to be on mm -hmm. a level playing field, it actually is tilting the playing field further apart. It's dividing people more economically. And Absolutely. That's not the America we want to be. We can do better than that. <laughs> Before, before I let you go, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this story that ran today, which is not shocking, but it is it's not surprising, but it's shocking. Republicans pushing, it's on a totally different subject, a national abortion ban. Is that something that the Senate, uh, Dem Senate Democrats are bracing for, an attempt by Republicans to take their supposed federalism, throw it in the trash, and try to ban abortion nationwide? Yeah. Yeah, actually, you're exactly right. Yes, we are braced for this. No, we are not going to let this happen. We will fight them every inch of the way. But actually, these two stories have something to do with each other. And I want you to look at where the Democrats are and where the Republicans are. The majority of Americans, Americans who have debt, don't have debt, who are young, who are old, say, cancel a big chunk of student loan debt. The overwhelming majority of Americans say keep Roe versus Wade as the law of the land. The Republicans are on the short end of the stick on both of those. In a democracy, yeah. we know what the world ought to look like. A whole lot less yeah. student loan debt and a whole lot more protection for people yeah. who want access to abortion. The Republicans yeah. are fighting us every inch of the way. You know, my view is bring it on. We need to be ready yeah. to fight them back. It's a, they have a minority position, but they are aggressive yep. as as all get out. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, yep. thank you. I want to have, have you come back and talk about Elon Musk at another show. But thank you so much for being here. OK, still ahead. How the poster child for America's white nationalist movement and Putin's lead apologist is turning the fears of older white conservatives into a ratings bonanza. We'll be right back. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Now, we've told you many times on the show about Tucker Carlson's obsession with trying to recast American racism to present white Americans as the oppressed group in this country and that the so-called ruling class is threatening everything his loyal viewers believe in. They don't care what you think. They want to control your mind. They want you to do what you're told. They, they want you to kiss the ring. They're not sentimental. They, they want, want the power. They want power. They, they hate you. you. They want to hurt you. They, they call you a racist. They, they call, call you racist. They want to control what you do. And of course, they want to control your children, too. And they want you to know it. They couldn't be clearer about that. New York Times reporter Nicholas Confessori is out with an exhaustive investigation of Tucker's life, career, and Fox News show, and has interviewed more than 11, has viewed, viewed more than 1,100 episodes of that show. Confessori's stunning conclusion is that the Frozen TV dinner air oversees the most racist show in the history of cable news that teaches loathing and fear. The embrace of these fixations that fester among white nationalists is by design. A former employee who worked frequently with Tucker says... He is going to double down on the white nationalism because the minute by minutes show that the audience eats it up. Nick Confessori, political and investigative reporter for The New York Times, joins me now. And Nick, this was um, excellent reporting. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about it was the power that Tucker seems to wield in the building and the sort of viciousness with, with which he's gone after other people at Fox who've questioned him in any way. Is that something that Lachlan Murdoch encourages? That, that, that environment doesn't seem healthy. You know, you know, uh, uh, it's hard to say who encourages it. I can tell you that it's not punished at Fox. Um, and we document a few examples, two in particular, where pretty junior people at Fox uh, complained that his rhetoric was either making an unsafe work environment uh, for some colleagues, a Muslim colleague who was being just attacked with racial slurs online. Uh, uh, and, and a second incident in which a reporter said that white supremacy is, in fact, real. It's not a hoax. Uh, and Carlson heard about this somehow. He was on vacation at the time, called her from a block number and yelled at her, shut up, shut your mouth. This is from the guy who talks about how everyone else wants to shut his viewers up, big tech and liberals and so forth. Uh, so with that kind of thin skinned behavior, you know, I'm not sure he was punished for that. Uh, uh, and you can see that that it's basically enabled that he's allowed to wield his power, uh, that he can say what he wants on the year. And, and he, you know, he certainly isn't reeled in. In a previous era in Fox, if someone goes too far, someone like Roger Ailes comes and reels the back in or benches them. And Tucker is not benched. 
The, the thing is, uh, you know, Fox News, you know, what Roger, what um, Rupert Murdoch sort of discovered, um, it, it's really literally no different than what Rush Limbaugh used to do, to be honest with you. And I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh back when I was doing talk radio because he was sort of the, you know, sort of the top of that, of the, of the craft. And so you want to listen to see what he does. I mean, it is a, it is a tactic. If your audience, and, you know, as you point out in your piece, this is a 92% white audience. It's an older audience. It's the oldest audience in cable news out of the three cable news networks. And, if you're, if that's who you're talking to, what Rush used to do was, you know, his, his, his shows were on all these little rural stations all over the country. And he was constantly feeding that very white, uh, largely rural audience constant n- nervousness, you know, constant a sense that you're being besieged, that black people are coming for you, the brown people are coming for you, the immigrants are coming for you, they're taking your stuff. And they're taking your stuff was sort of boiled down. That's what his message was, whether it was women and it was feminists and it was everyone's taking from you. Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch just really did that on Fox too. What is Tucker doing that's different from what Rupert set up, what Rupert Murdoch set up? Because I feel like that's been, that's been the trajectory the whole time. But you reported that Tucker's doing something different. What is that? Or what is the difference? Look, a big difference is that Carlson is taking themes and ideas from the underbelly of the far right. Uh, things that appear in the old days on V-Dare, which is native a site, uh, on the Daily Stormer, on, you know, places which that Which is a Nazi site, by the way. The Daily Stormer day. is Nazi. A neo-Nazi I, site. I just, yeah. Uh, that's right. And these ideas are then, you know, polished up lightly and presented. And I'll give you a great example. Replacement theory, I think everyone noticed in April when he got a lot of flack uh, for defending replacement theory. But in fact, it wasn't the first time. It's been a growing part of his broadcast since 2017, when he was put in the eight o'clock hour, there are 400 episodes of the show Joy, in which he embraces a version of replacement theory, which is a, a conspiracy theory that says that an elite cabal of leaders, either in the um, in in Europe or the U.S., are conspiring to replace the native-born population of America with people who are foreign-born, and it's often Muslims um, in the European context, or it's people from Latin America or Africa. In the American context, on the very far right, it's blamed on Jews. Um, in the yes. polished up version, it's blamed on the ruling class. And that's the version you see on Tucker Carlson tonight. Um, and you see it all the time. And very clearly, for those who are watching the show, when, when those men were chanting, those, those young men were, uh, neo-Nazis were chanting, Jews will not replace us. That is what white replacement theory, that's the embodiment of it. It's this idea that Jews are somehow conspiring to replace white <coughs> Americans with non-white Americans. Why does it go, why does it work from a business model? They've lost at Fox some actually really good journalists. Chris Wallace left, you know, some of their commentators left who, you know, sort of wrote for the big conservative magazines, sort of traditional conservative Shepard Smith, who was very popular at the time, but left. Um, why does it work as a business model? I think that the more that news becomes jarring uh, to a certain viewer and unpleasant, has facts that are unpleasant, um, it's harder and harder to keep that audience and show them real news. And the tension becomes greater and greater. I think a lot of those guys left because it was just too hard. And I think Fox was not too unhappy to see some of them go because the viewers didn't always like seeing those points of view, seeing straight news or Fox versions of straight news. It's different than you'd see on NBC, uh, but it was there. I think the second reason is, look, this is a programming edge and you're looking for stuff that will rile people up and get them angry and fearful every night. And so in the search for that edge, I think that Carlson and his team found that if they just borrowed some of this stuff 
from weird sites from the far reaches of the internet and gave it a light polish. It was very powerful. And it is powerful. There's a former colleague of Carlson's who calls this strategy rage inflation. It's not not just Mm -hmm. to get them angry. You have to really spin it up. And as the cable audience declined, which it is for every network, including this one, you got to find a way to squeeze more juice out of the lemon. And this is how they figured out how to do it. And by the way, it's also saved uh, what had been a failing, pretty, you know, pretty middling uh, cable news career for Tucker, who y'all remember, he used to work here. He used to work at MSNBC. He tried CNN. He tried MSNBC. This is a model that has made him a lot of money. Uh, it's very popular. And I don't think he minds that he has to borrow from neo-Nazi websites to make it happen because it's working for him. Nick Confessori, great reporting. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here. And up next, a ruling late today by a district judge in Oklahoma gives survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre a last chance for justice. Stay with us. We lost everything that day, our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America. I was so scared. I didn't think we, we, could, we could make it out to alive. I remember people were running everywhere. We live with it every day. And the thought of what... Greenwood was was and what it could have been. Just before last year's 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, the three remaining survivors testified about what they had endured. It was one of the worst atrocities of terrorist violence in American history. A mob of white men bombed, burned, and looted the prosperous Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street. Over two days of horrific violence, as many as 300 people were slaughtered. The search for mass graves continues to this day. Now, they will get an historic chance to make their case in court for reparations from the city and from other entities. Today, a Tulsa judge heard arguments in a reparations lawsuit filed by those survivors and ruled that a trial can go forward, denying a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. Attorneys for the survivors argued that the events of those two days in 1921 created an ongoing public nuisance for them and their descendants. It comes at a critical time for those survivors, Viola Fletcher, Lessie Benningfield Randall, and Hughes Van Ellis, for them to see those reparations in their lifetime. Well, you'd have to act fast because all three are centenarians. The oldest, Viola Fletcher, turns 108 years old next week. Joining me now, Demario Solomon Simmons, civil rights attorney and founder of Justice for Greenwood. Um, Thank you so much for being here, uh, Mr. Simmons, and congratulations on moving the case forward. Uh, What does that mean in regular person terms? Joy, thank you for having me on. Uh, it means that we we still alive. You know, that's the main thing we wanted to have have happened today was to be able to move forward with this case. It's never before in the history of this issue for one over 100 years have one, a case related to the massacre been able to move forward, and we be able to do that. That's the great news. Uh, the unknown is we don't know exactly what's going to happen next because the judge only ruled from the bench, which was unexpected to say that she was yeah. going to allow a part of to move forward. We don't know what exact part is moving forward. We don't know when discovery mm-hmm. uh, will start, but we know we will have another day in court and we know we're still alive. 
Let me show you. This was uh, back, back when we did the story um, uh, around the anniversary. We showed this New York Times Interactive. It's really it's jarring to see it. Um, and it just shows the scope of what was destroyed. Let's see if we can show that. This is no, there it is. So you had this beautiful area um, known as Black Wall Street. And, you know, it was prosperous. And literally these men, this mob, uh, the, you know, I guess a, a January 6th style mob came, burned, looted, shot people, dragged people out of buildings and, and, and just destroyed it. Let me play for you what the mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum, told uh, my friend and colleague Tiffany Cross when she went out there and asked whether there should be repair for that. With you specifically, the Bynum family, as I'm sure you know, um, enslaved nearly a thousand people. Um, And you inherited that wealth from the family, where the African-Americans here in the community had their wealth taken from them. So when you say no cash payouts, I think people look at it and say, well, wow, you inherited wealth. You inherited your position in life because of uh, enslaving people who look like me. How do you reconcile saying, yeah, but that was then and we don't owe you anything for that now? Because you're asking me about reparations for an event that was a criminal act a hundred years ago. What do you, what would you say to people like the Tulsa mayor who say happened, it's over, no one owes anyone anything? I would say he was wrong. And that's what our case is about because it was a criminal act. He's right about that. Uh, but it didn't happen. It just, it's not about what happened a hundred years ago. It's the continuation of the harm that continues to this day. The public nuisance law that we're utilizing is very powerful because it specifically states if there is a triggering act, which it was the Tulsa race massacre, and if there is continuing harm, which it is, then that until that harm is abated or fixed or eradicated, then the public the claim is still a valid claim. And that has been a law in Oklahoma since 1910 and has been affirmed on many, many occasions by the Oklahoma Supreme Court. So Mayor Bynum is wrong. Um, it's unfortunate that he would say something like that. It's unfortunate that he represents uh, so many people in his city would have that type of attitude when you have free living survivors, when you have videos you're showing, pictures that you're showing, insurance claims that were not paid. So we, you know, we're just happy that our judge gave yeah. us this opportunity to move this case forward. How did uh, Ms. Viola, uh, Ms. Lessie, uh, and Mr. Hughes Van Ellis react uh, to the case moving forward? Did you get a chance to talk to them? Oh, absolutely. And it was just the greatest feeling for me personally after working with hundreds of survivors seeing so many die without seeing, you know, this opportunity to have those three in court with us the entire time. They were elated. I looked back, I went and talked to Uncle Red and he was just bawling. You know, he was just crying. And, you know, he had told told me, he sent me a text message a couple of days ago. He said, let them know they're trying to wait for us to die, but we're not going anywhere. So that's the best uh, feeling in the world. It's unbelievable. Our, the community was there, it was packed. It was literally standing room only. We're just really excited about the team we put together uh, with our, my colleagues, my co-counsel for Shorty Boss is able. And just to get this, this small victory, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. We got a lot mm-hmm. of understanding to get from the judge, but we're excited about the opportunity. Yeah. Well, I'm always happy. Every so often, we, we never get to do much good news on this show. So thank you so much for being here. Please tell Ms. Viola, uh, Ms. Lessie, and Uncle Red, which is Hughes Van Ellis, um, we're very happy. They were six and seven years old when this happened. Imagine seeing that as a little kid. I, I can't even imagine what they went through, but thank you. Uh, Demario Solomon thank Simmons, you so much, appreciate you. Thank Up you. next. Cheers. And up next, the Republican primary in Ohio tomorrow will be a big test for Trump and Trumpism back in a second.
he is still the leader of the Republican Party. Even the candidates who he's not endorsed, those who he have snubbed, they're still kissing up to him. They're still mentioning his name in their speeches and their TV ads. They want his support. So that tells you everything about the grip he still has. That was the New York Times' Jonathan Martin today talking about the hold the former president, who lost by 7 million votes, has over his party. With primary season now upon us, we are about to find out whether that hold is starting to fade. In Georgia, early voting has begun ahead of their primary election on May 24th. Get out there and vote. And in Ohio, primary voters go to the polls tomorrow. And let me tell you, it is a race to the bottom, with a string of Republican Senate candidates falling all over themselves to parrot the Florida retiree. President Trump asked me to take over the Republican Party, and I delivered Ohio for President Trump. The 2020 election was stolen from Donald J. Trump. I don't think questioning and trying to find a legal way of overturning the election is in any way treasonous or even slightly illegal. These people know that I supported Trump in 2020. Up until April 15th, it was a wide open race. Former state treasurer Josh Mandel was leading the pack with his Trumpian delusion, xenophobia and bigotry. Then Trump endorsed the Peter Thiel funded J.D. Vance. And Vance got a considerable bounce from that endorsement. But here's the thing. Vance has proved to be so unremarkable that even Trump uh, forgot his name. We've endorsed J.P., right? J.D. Mandel. And he's doing great. They're all doing good. So tomorrow we'll find out whether in Ohio, at least Trump's political bite is as big as his rather confused bark. And that is tonight's readout here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.